The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Uh, let's go now to God's Word. I'm so excited about this text this morning. Uh, Mamie, come read it to us. All right, our text is 1 John 2, 3-14. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time... It is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, we pray that your spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray, O God, that your word would go deep in our hearts and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Bring correction, bring repentance, open our eyes to the depth of our sin and how our hearts have deceived us. And oh God, lead us under the way everlasting. Speak to us now, Lord Jesus. We need to hear from you. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Love and obedience. Those two things and and those two concepts are often pitted against each other as enemies. And yet, John marries them. From chapter 1 to chapter 2, and really throughout the book, he marries love and obedience. And he is showing us the correlation. And we do the same thing. We do because what spouse is just totally cool with infidelity? No. We all know instinctively that true love, a love relationship, demands fidelity and faithfulness. And the bond of love can be broken with unfaithfulness and infidelity. So don't fool yourself, God is telling us through the Apostle John. Don't play games. God is not a God that we can just play, that we can pull the wool over his eyes. Yeah, I'll say yes to you, but really in my heart I'm committed to everything else but you. And what John is saying is, is there's a real correlation between loving God, having fellowship with God that we focused on last week, the koinonia relationship of love and, and vulnerability before God, and obedience. 
And the two are absolutely married. So let's see how they're married, because we can't say and we can't have confidence and we can't have assurance of faith unless we can look at our lives and we can see a, 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 a push toward obedience to the one we love. And so how does this work out? First of all, knowing God and obeying God is conditioned upon his love primarily, not yours. If you want to be obedient, you have to know the love of God. I saw this displayed perfectly in the movie Hidden Figures. Uh, if you have not gone to see that movie, you need to go see that movie. It's incredible. It, it features and focuses on the story of three African-American women that work at NASA in the 60s. And uh, they really changed the culture of uh, the work culture of NASA um, just by their excellence and their persistence and their um, the, the way they handle themselves with utmost integrity and 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 um, and, and boldness, really. Um, and, and so you got to go see the movie. Um, but um, Catherine Goebel is, is one of the characters. It's her real name, real life name. And um, she was a single mom of three daughters, three beautiful little daughters. Um, her mom had to move in with them after her husband's death. Her husband died of a brain tumor. And, um, and so um, she had to go to work after his death, obviously. And, and she works hard. She works long hours, and her daughters know this. And you can see the, the good relationship that they have because of the sacrifices that she's making for them. Well, she meets a man by the name of James, and James has just moved into town, James Johnson moved into town to lead the local um, uh, National Guard unit, I think it was. And so they develop this relationship, and, and the, it gets to the point where you know that, that they're probably going to get married. And one night, uh, Catherine gets home, and her girls are in dresses, and they're sitting around the table, the dining room table that is set. And the mom is there, she's in a dress, and there's James with his tie on, and as, as soon as she comes in, he gets up and he seats her, and you know what's about to happen, he's about to propose. But, and the proposal is beautiful, and it's a wonderful moment in the movie, but what I loved was to watch the faces of those three girls, to see the life that they were getting because something wonderful was happening to their mother. And you see, you could say, in a sense, that Catherine Goebel's love was perfected in her daughters. You can see the sacrifice and, and her love paying off, if you will, in how her daughters rejoice in the fact that mom is getting something wonderful. She's getting married. And that is what um, John is talking about. He's talking about one who is obedient... Uh, when you see somebody who's obedient, that the love of God is perfected in them. This is the fruit of God's love being perfected in us when we show obedience. True obedience because love motivates. There is no greater motivation than love. Fear has its place, but love transforms. Love comes in deep and hot and it changes us. And this is how Christianity works. Christianity is response to the love that we were made for, made to be filled with, and made to be filled by. Let me say that again. Christianity works when we are responding 
to the love that we were made for, namely the love of God, and we were made to be filled by. How do we get this love? John says two things. First, we've got to take it in. We've got to take love in. Love can't just be some hypothetical concept that sits, um, you know, on, on, on the, the shelf of our hearts or the shelf of our brains. But we have to bring it in. In him, so says John, the love of God is perfected in him. You see, that's what Paul is praying for, for the Ephesian church in Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. Listen, it really explains this concept. For this reason, so says Paul, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. You see, the love of God is a pervasive thing. It's to, it's to, it's to uh, come deep into the soul, in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you may be rooted and grounded in love and may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Knowing God is bringing him in. He uses knowing God and loving God almost interchangeably. And the reason he does is because of the nature and the definition of this Greek word know. It's gnosis. K, excuse me, G-N-O-S-I-S. The Hebrew version um, is, is used in Genesis when uh, Moses tells us that Adam knew Eve and she bore a son. Well, what, what is he talking about there? It's pretty obvious. <laughs> it is a penetrating and Yes, I know what I'm saying. It is a penetrating knowledge. It is a real knowledge. It's not just some casual knowledge. It is an intimate knowledge that produces fruit. We must bring God in or real obedience is not going to happen. However, God's love must be thought through. How do we get it in? The knowledge... knowledge really does come through the brain to the heart. What, what John is saying in the book of John is it's not just faith saves us, but it's faith in a certain knowledge. It's possessing a certain knowledge of what is true. It's not just faith in anything saves us. It is faith and trust in God himself. You see, what, what John is going to tell us next week and, and, and uh, in other parts of his book is that there are false messages. He's going to get into this whole concept of antichrist. There, is, there are false messages in the world that if you believe it, it will make you more selfish. It will take you further away from God, even if it's using God language. And so right and true theology, how we think about God, is extremely important. Because when we are thinking correctly about God, it is producing a certain product, and that is a life of love. You see, the message that all roads lead to heaven is not a compelling enough message. There's no power in that message to make me a sinner want to change my ways. 
Sin has such a grip on Richard's heart and mind that, that there, there's nothing compelling about that message that is going to make me want to fight sin and press my heart in a d- different direction. However, the message that the God of heaven and earth existed from all eternity as love. And there's so much love in him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's so much joy, there's so much life, there's so much celebration that, that out of this trinity, out of, this, out of the one true God explodes creation. Because God could not contain himself. And he creates man in his image because he wants a creature to be able to, um, uh, and people to be able to experience the life and the joy and the light that exists in God. But part and parcel to the story is that man rejects God because he wants to be God. And yet what does God do? God gives them over to their desires, but that's not all he does for us. What does God do? He, he, he determines to send His Son. And His Son comes and lives under the law, to perform under the law, to, to create a righteousness, a, a, a holiness that we as sinful men and women could never create. You see, that's what religion does. The, 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 all the other gods of the world say, here, jump this high and maybe God will love you. Maybe you'll go to heaven. Maybe you'll come back in a better condition than you are. But no, Christianity says you can never jump high enough. And therefore, Jesus came and he jumped for you. And then he became your sin on the cross. And God the Father poured out his just wrath and his just anger upon sin. And now all we must do through faith is receive the love of God that is available to us. It doesn't matter who we are or what we've done. We just must receive that love. And when we do, then we are reconciled to the Father based on the work of Jesus. And when we believe that message, it it creates a different lifestyle. It creates an obedience. You see, Mother Teresa would just be a fool. If she gave up her life, gave up everything to serve in the the, the streets and the gutters of India. Dr. Martin Luther King would just be a fool if if he knew of his impending death. If, If he had a sense that he was going to die, that someone was going to take him, but he kept going. But what did he do? He said, I'm not afraid. Why? Because I've been to the mountaintop. Why? Because I have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He saw something, he had knowledge of something different, and it was the knowledge of Jesus. And that's how he could give his life. Every other message in the world, does, there's no other message that, that creates self-sacrifice, self-sacrificial love like the gospel. And so the question is, do you believe the gospel? Have you brought Jesus in and are you thinking upon him? Love, God's love changes us when we know it. But secondly, obedience and love work in tandem. I ran into somebody this week who providentially told me that that their loved one was really struggling with their faith. Um, if you've been with Jesus long, you know that there, there are seasons in our lives where we just grow cold and we become filled with doubt 
And we begin to test God and we begin to, to really question, does he really love me? Because it doesn't feel like he really loves me. And, and, and my friend told her friend, he, she said, this is, what I, this is what has brought me through those moments. She said, obedience. Obedience has brought me through those moments. And I thought, that's brilliant. That's exactly what John is saying. You see, in those times when we are not feeling God, when we are not experienced koinonia fellowship, when the words that we have sung this morning are, 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 are just that, they're just words, they're not existential realities in our hearts, they're not experiential realities, we're not feeling the love of God, what do you do? You obey. You point your life in, a, in the right direction, the direction that God says leads to life, whether you feel it or not. I love the, the story of Odysseus, this Greek mythological hero who, um, when he passed this mythological island called the Isle of Sirens, that, that uh, in Greek mythology on this island there were these sirens that would sound and if the, the ship captain would be so allured, so captivated by them that he would turn the ship and he, all he could focus on were those sirens and he would go right to the island to the point that he would crash his ship into the rocks. And so what Odysseus would do is, is when he got close to that island, he would tell his men to tie him to the mast. And I thought, that's it. <laughs> you know, that in a sense is what covenant marriage is. It, it's saying, I will love you. I will, I'm committed to you unto death. And the only way to do that, my heart is not naturally um, I'm going to be in love with you in times. And so I am tying myself to the mass of this covenant relationship. I'm putting this ring on my finger to remind me that I am not my own, but I'm yours. You see, that's what relationship with God must be sometimes. And in heaven, we won't need covenant. Our desires will be perfected. Our love relationship with God will be perfected. And we will respond perfectly to His love. And, and, and that will be the relationship in glory. But folks, we are not in heaven yet. And our hearts are deceitful above all things. And you can't trust yourself. And I can't trust myself. Because my heart will lie to me often. And so I need to be bound to the truth. And therefore, walking with Jesus sometimes means getting out of bed whether I want to or not and forcing myself to read the Bible and forcing myself to pray. I love what Tim Keller said. He said, a walk with God is day in and day out praying. It's day in and day out Bible and Psalms reading. Day in and day out obeying, talking to Christian friends and going to corporate worship, committing yourself to and fully participating in the life of a church. It is rhythmic on and on and on. To walk with God is a metaphor that symbolizes slow and steady progress. So here's what we see in John. We see on one hand... Heartless obedience leads to legalism. It can do that. Heartless obedience can lead to legalism. But on the other hand, waiting until you feel compelled to obey God leads you off the cliff of infidelity with God. 
And so because we live in this middle and looking toward heaven on the day when our desires will be perfected, then we must know that, yes, true obedience flows and, 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 and comes from a place of love. However, obedience, even when we don't feel like it, sometimes can be as righteous, if not more righteous, than the love, loving obedience that we present to God that is flowing from our hearts. Do you see it? I mean, in our relationships, when we're obedient with each other, when we're not betraying each other, we don't ask ourselves, what's your motivation? (laughs) Well, we're just happy to get the obedience. And yet, do we stop there? No. No, we want our hearts to catch up with, with our actions. We want our hearts to be transformed. We want the deeper inner working. But there are seasons in our lives when that simply does not come. That's why we need the discipline of a plan to read through the Word of God. Do you have one? Have you bound your heart to the mass of a disciplined study schedule of God's Word? Do you have a disciplined schedule of prayer? Do you have, are you disciplined about your church attendance? Are you disciplined about Christian fellowship? Are you in a community group? If you're not in a community group, do you have a group that you are going to and you're submitting yourself to? See, are you tying yourself to the mass of what God says is right and true? And if you direct your life in this direction over the long haul, through the ages, there will be blessing and the blessing will be knowing me. That's the relationship between love and obedience. But thirdly, love is not hypothetical. Love is not hypothetical, and love is the ultimate obedience. I met with one of our members this week who's in AA. Uh, We have a number of people in our body that are in some type of recovery group. Um, and, And we were talking about the... You know, what, I asked him what step he was on and how the progress was going and, 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 you know, then we, we, we talked about, I think it's step seven. I'm sorry. I could, there are many people in here that can correct me, but I, I think it's step seven in the 12 steps that, that, you know, is the reconciliation step where you, you write down everybody that you've offended and you, you know, you know, you've got to, you've got to go to those people if it, if you're, you know, if it's not going to cause more harm, I think that's the qualification. But but you go to those people and you apologize and you seek reconciliation. And I want you to know that I don't know why we reserve that for recovery. <laughs> because we all need that. I, I mean, imagine what kind of church we would be. Imagine what kind of people we would be if every single one of us went home today and made a list of every, every relationship that we needed to, uh, to just humble ourselves in and go apologize. Wow. And yet AA understands that you can't have health when there is turmoil in relationship. I think the Bible agrees. Paul puts it this way, let no debt remain outstanding, Romans 13, 89, I think. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love. And those who love fulfill the law of God. You hear what I'm saying? We make, we, we, it, it amazes me how we in the church make, you know, the law, uh, breaking the law is, you know, uh, sexual brokenness. 
um, you know, breaking the law is doing this too much. Not, you know what breaking the law is primarily in the word of God? It's not loving. The continuing debt of love. That's what we are called to. Jesus said this, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. I, I love and hate this passage because Jesus doesn't say, if you remember somebody that you hurt. No, it says, if you know somebody that has something against you, you're responsible. Wow, that list just got a little longer, didn't it? Uh, wow. And this is what, this is what um, John says. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Dear friends, to hate, Jesus made clear in the parable of um, the Good Samaritan that to hate your brother doesn't just mean to have a grudge against him, it means to ignore him. Jesus said, hey, love God, the greatest commandment, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, Jesus, said the smart lawyer, so who's our neighbor? <laughs> we got you on this one. Okay, well, let me tell you, your neighbor is anybody that is that, that you walk by and you leave and, and, and they're beat up and left for dead. That's your neighbor. Would our city be where we are today if the church had taken that seriously? Would our city be where we are today if we said this is the law of God and this is how we, this is what we're going to take seriously? Love your neighbor as yourself. Who do you need to stop and love? Do you even know your neighbor? Do you know the people that are suffering in our city? This is so relational. I read an article this week in the Boston Globe. <laughs> You'll see why I read it. Uh, the title is this, The Biggest Threat Facing Middle-Aged Men. That caught my attention. Uh, <clears throat> isn't smoking or obesity. It's loneliness. It, it quotes um, our Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy who says the most prevalent health issue in the country is not cancer or heart disease or obesity, it's isolation. Wow. When I talk to people, when our elders talk to people that leave downtown church, you know the primary thing that we hear? I just never made deep relationships. Oh. Wow. In the church, this has to change. You know, I think, it's, it, it, I think we've got to have a mindset shift to do this. Um, I coach a young man, Mike Weinbrenner, in a church in Horn Lake. Uh, he's planning a multi-ethnic, multi-class church in Horn Lake. Um, it's called Christ Fellowship. If you know anybody in Horn Lake, if you live in Horn Lake, um, send them to that church or go to that church. It's an amazing work. Um, but we were talking this week, and he began coaching me. He said, Richard, said I, I, I've just rewrote the language for church membership in our church. To, to read like adoption. 
So we're not talking church membership anymore. We're talking about becoming adopted by this church family. Church membership is not membership. The church is the family of God. And therefore, when somebody, the only way to enter a family is through adoption. We're not visitors. We're not guests. We are adopted children into a family. I said, Mike, that may be the smartest thing God ever gave you. Because we're going to start doing that at downtown church. Because immediately in my own mind, I thought, wow. That is how we want to communicate what this is. And yet our language works so against it. And so who doesn't want to be adopted by a family? Who doesn't want to become part of something that you know that you're going to be loved no matter what? That that you're going to be brought in and and you're going to be welcome at the dinner table in anybody's house. That, that your problems are going to be their problems. That your struggles are going to be their struggles. And you are going to have a part to play in this family. That's what we must see the church as because that's what it is. And yet we've all been so hurt and we've all been so wounded. How do we do it? We, we see this is the model in verses 12 through 14. This is, I think, why. I mean, so much has been written about these verses. It's like... I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven. I'm writing to you fathers. I'm writing to you young men. I'm writing to you children. It's like, what is he getting at? He's just taking a little break to say, hey, family, everybody in here this applies to. That's all he's saying. So how do we do that? It's by understanding the reality of verses 1 and 2 in chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. How do we love again when we've been hurt so badly? How do we love again when we've been betrayed so regularly? We remember that the one we've hurt the most, the one we betray every day, is the one whose passionate love never stops burning for us. Because he gave his life for us, we can have power to draw down on to love those around us. My friend Mo Leverett, who I went to seminary with, wrote some lyrics to one of his most recent songs, and he states this, We build sophisticated fortresses to guard the heart, then find ourselves isolated. We open our hearts to unvetted visitors and find ourselves violated. The line between relational trust and vulnerability is unmanageable, unmanageably thin. It may be true that our supporters outnumber our foes, but the latter have larger weapons with which to wound. There's a friend who responds to every contrite thought with grace and can turn every inevitable shortcoming into redemptive reward. And though possess the master key to penetrate our most elaborate defenses, he's nevertheless polite enough to patiently await an invitation. Dear friends, this morning, if you want to have the power to love, and if you need to be renewed in the power who is love, to be able to begin to make that list and start pursuing those relationships, to start taking that step and join a community group, to tar- start taking that step and approach a guy or a, a, you know, a group of women in the church and say, I need you, I, I need to meet regularly, I need people that I can pour out my heart to, I need people to do life with, I need people to love and to love me in Christ. 
Where do you get the passion to do that? Where do you get the strength to do that? It's only by drawing down on the love of God himself. So, dear friends, may we do that at Downtown Church, and may we become the community that this church was started to make, a radical community that loves beyond every line, even the lines of the offenses already made. Lord Jesus, we pray this morning that you would bring healing to our wounded souls. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you might draw us so high up and deep into you that we might have power to not only be vulnerable with you, but to be vulnerable with those around us. God, would you create a church community, a downtown church that resembles this adoptive family? Oh God, I pray that the world would see that that's what we want to be. We want to be moms and dads and brothers and sisters. We want to be a family that loves and that walks faithfully with. We want to be a family that is about truth and stands for truth and confronts and says hard things, but we want to be a family that loves and embraces, and our relationships are not conditioned upon those things. Oh God, would you come by the power of your Spirit this morning? Would you meet us where we are in our hearts? Would you help us to think rightly? May we hold off, and may we push away the whisper of the devil. And oh God, may we bring in the mercies of Christ that we may love and love boldly. And Father, we pray this in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen.